0: Welcome to Episode 10 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast chronicling the adventures of the Caped Crusader in the post-Crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And today, or tonight, really whenever you're listening to this, we are continuing our coverage of the epic Year One storyline with a review of Batman issue 405. Back on Episode 8, we did an artist spotlight on Frank Miller. This time, we turn our focus on artist David Mazzuccelli. Chris was awesome enough to take the point on this spotlight because I was busy making a fake Ghostbusters podcast. So, Chris, (laughs) what can you tell us about Mr. Mazzuccelli?
1: Okay, David John Mazzuccelli was born in September of 1960 and is a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. He broke into comics with a fill-in pencil job on Marvel's Master of Kung Fu with issue number 121, cover dated February 1983. Over the course of the following year, he worked on fill-ins for The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and a title he would soon be known for, Daredevil, All at Marvel. Now, Masicelli drew one comic story for DC Comics during this period, a lone five-page Superman-Batman backup in World's Finest Comics number 302 from April of 1984. He took over the pencils and eventually the inks as well on Daredevil, beginning with issue number 208, July 1984. Initially working with writer Denny O'Neill, who was obviously the editor of the Batman books during this period— Mazzuchelli stayed on board as Penciler when former Daredevil writer-slash-artist Frank Miller returned to that title. Miller and Mazzuchelli produced the highly acclaimed storyline now known as Born Again during this run, depicting the Kingpin's systematic destruction of Daredevil's private life and the hero's rise above it. Miller and Mazzuchelli concluded the storyline and left the book with issue number 233, August 1986. Following the critical and sales success his Batman The Dark Knight miniseries had gained, Miller successfully pitched Batman Year One to new Batman editor Denny O'Neill. See, it's all coming together. Uh, According to Trevor Von Eden, the Year One art job was initially offered to him, but he turned it down. Now, Von Eden was no stranger to Batman, and him and uh, Frank Miller had both dated Lynn Varley, who became Frank Miller's wife. Uh, But Von Eden turned the job down for whatever reason. Miller then offered the job to Masicelli, who was joined by his future wife, Richmond Lewis, on colors. She was also a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. The overwhelmingly positive response to Batman Year One catapulted Masicelli to superstar status, but it would be his last major mainstream comic work, by his own choosing. Instead, he turned his efforts to independent comic works and teaching art. He and Lewis edited the comic anthology Rubber Blanket, where he added writing to his list of creative endeavors. Along with Paul Karasik, he co-wrote and illustrated a comic adaptation of Paul Aster's City of Glass. Mazzuchelli's most recent comic project is his original graphic novel, I hope I'm saying this right, Asterisk Polyup, published in 2009 by Pantheon Books. He also contributed covers and interior art to The New Yorker and currently teaches at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. He made one brief return to the world of Batman with artwork in the humor jam book World's Funnest in 2001. Masicelli was not a fan of the 2012 Batman Year One Deluxe Edition. He complained to Comet's Alliance that at DC's request he had worked on developing a deluxe hardcover a few years earlier. Without his knowledge, DC scrapped that version and put out a different package. Masicelli was also offended by the fuzzy scans of his wife Richmond Lewis's color work and the use of glossy paper, unlike all the previous editions. Although his body of work is relatively small, Mazzucchelli has influenced many comic artists who have entered the field since, including Marcos Martin, Chris Samney, Javier Paludo, and even Tim Sale and Darwin Cook. So, did I miss anything, Ryan?
0: No, that's about all that I had, and especially I didn't even think about the influences. But when you started naming those guys like uh, Javier Paluto and and uh, Marcos Martin, I was like, God, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely see that. Like because I I was reading a lot of their Marvel work a couple of years ago, and I can definitely see how they would have been influenced by Masicelli.
1: Yeah. Well, those two were pegged to do uh, Robin and Batgirl Year One in mm-hmm. the, a similar style. So it, you know, it, but. It, 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 I th- there's there's tons more artists who are influenced by him, but those right. were the ones that that popped to mind. So yeah, yeah. So
0: yeah, it's funny. Like back when we covered Batman 401, when we were talking about Trevor Von Eden, I mentioned how in that story, at least, I thought his work was fairly comparable to what we would see in year one with Mazzucchelli, mm-hmm. and at the time that I said that I did not know the story that uh, at least according to him Frank Miller offered him the year one gig because uh, I said you know if, if Von Eden had stayed on the book on Batman for a while his style would have f- blended more seamlessly in with year one and it wouldn't have been such a, a jarring transition you know going from the work of Starlin or, or uh, Dennis Cowan or something like that to the Mazzucchelli work it, yeah, it is interesting that he says he, he was offered. He passed on it. And from everything that I've seen uh, from a couple of different interviews and sources, he doesn't really give an explanation for why he passed. He just says like mm-hmm. he wasn't interested or maybe he was – I mean, he couldn't have been that upset with DC at the time uh, because he was still working for them pretty regularly. Right. But it is weird that, yeah, at one point he says he was dating Lynn Varley, who would eventually go on to marry Frank Miller. I don't know the exact timeline of when that was, of who she was with at the time that Year One was coming out. But then it's also weird that they got they replaced him with David Mazzuccelli, who brought in his own girlfriend, who was an, a painter outside the world of comics, but he wanted to bring her into his world. So strange that maybe if Von Eden had stayed on the book, Richmond Lewis wouldn't have been the art wouldn't have been the colorist. It probably would have been Lynn Varley or somebody like that. Right, so, yeah. Well it makes uh, you
1: kinda of wonder why Miller didn't just bring Lynn Varley over from The Dark Knight, but maybe she was busy doing something else, you know. Or so
0: someone else. <gasps> <laughs> Oh jeez. <laughs> no. I know I, I I know very little about her up to and including the fact that I think there was one of those things on like comic book resources where there are like a fact or or fault, like truth or myth one of their regular segments there was one that was like is Lynn Varley a real person or is that just like a pseudonym for Frank Miller does he color his own stuff under a different name it's like no they were actually married she has won multiple awards but but the story was later confused because there was supposedly a picture of Frank Miller and Lynn Varley together but the picture was misattributed it was Frank Miller and his uh i at least current wife or a different wife that wasn't Lynn Varley so
1: mm, yeah i don't but, know if they're still together or not right. so okay, i'm guessing they're not but i i think Richmond Lewis and and are together still as far as i know um yeah, yeah. but uh well, you know for years i thought Richmond Lewis was a guy you know i mean sure, uh, you know it's, you know.
0: <laughs> the name <laughs> but, would suggest that,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I just assumed, you know, but yeah, you know. Uh but yeah, it's uh- yeah that's kind of interesting because uh we'll get to it but uh there is one panel in this comic that to me has always said man that looks like trevor von eden drew that and that's before i knew uh we had a comment from scott x um mm-hmm. in our comment section about uh the the, the uh, von eden connection uh to year one and i was like wow that's weird because there's this one panel that looks like it like it's been pulled from uh the, the batman annual number eight we just won't quit talking about that von <laughs> right. eden and that's what's weird is Vaughn Eden had a history with Batman. He drew annual number eight. He drew a few other Batman stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'd been drawn detective comics, uh, backups of Green Arrow and Black Canary here and there. Because obviously he's got a connection to those characters. And he goes on to draw a couple of uh, arcs in, uh, or ink, or somehow illustrate a couple of arcs in Legends of the Dark Knight a few years down the line. He did the, uh, was involved in the Venom storyline that introduced the, the Venom drug that Bane eventually uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know it's that's not too far from this it's just like three or four years so uh, it's really weird that he if you know that he would eh, turn turned it down I mean but, but yeah, you're right you know it's it if he had continued to do Batman in that style or even if they had him do the other fill in issues and then made Von Eden the regular artist then I think you would have seen I mean this look would have been cemented more as the Batman look mm-hmm. you know uh, and I mean it's it's a Batman look, but it would have been I think the Batman look uh, yeah. of the period so it it it'd been interesting uh, to see what had happened there, but obviously that's not what happened so
0: and the and again, not knowing any special circumstances or other details, the only reason I can think of for him passing on the book would have been a personal problem with Miller. Either they they had some problem with each other and wouldn't work together, maybe having to do with a woman, maybe not. Sure, she left Or the other thing is he's actually exaggerating the story, and it was never a serious offer that he do it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, i I really have no idea now for, for those of you listening, as you can tell, we have spent a good portion of this artist' spotlight talking about someone other than david <laughs> Um and that is because as as Chris told you, his work in the comic book field was fairly limited he wasn 't mainstream for a very long time, but the work that he did produce was awesome i mean we 're going right. to gush over it for this and two at least two other episodes. Um, it was just really good. It's just the the body of work is not as deep and as, as you know, all-encompassing as some of the other artists that we'll be talking about.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, you know, I have that World's Finest issue. I bought it right off the shelf. There's no indication of what he'll become there. I mean, it's... It's heavily inked by Roden Rodriguez, who was a mm. uh, D.C. mainstay of the early to mid 80s. And he I liked his inks, but he pretty much would just drown any penciler that he touched. I yeah. mean, it, it, it could be anybody underneath there. Uh, so it's not bad, but there's nothing special there. So, uh, you know, I think I probably first saw his work uh you know on daredevil i didn't buy daredevil regularly i picked it up occasionally but i had a friend who was a big daredevil reader and fan so i just read his comics so shout out to my buddy grover he listens occasionally uh so uh i know i had the oh hot moo issue with the dd profile the yep. uh the deluxe edition which uh you know cisco and the girls should be getting to pretty soon so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. nice.
0: All right. Well, uh, with that taken care of, let us move on to our Spinner Rack segment and look at other comics that were released the same month as Batman 405, which was cover dated March 1987. These books would have been on sale around December of 1986. So, just looking at the DC comics, uh, a couple of them, we were still in the middle of the Legends event crossover and everything, so we had Legends issue 5 and the major tie-in issues from this time were all the superman family of books superman action comics and adventures of superman
1: the superman storyline was uh that was i don't know for me i guess i'd seen the dark side the new gods show up in justice league and the jla jsa crossover like in 1980 81 whenever that year was but then you know then the superpowers all that stuff come along and then all of a sudden, you know, Darkseid's the big baddie in Legends. He's a big bad in like three issues of Superman. I, I felt like all like my actual cartoon watching and my toy <laughs> buying and my comic buying were all coming together, you know. So, so and, and it, you know, and it really that's Darkseid's the big bad of the DC movie universe, you know. So that all stems from this period, you right. know. Uh so uh, and of course a similar storyline was done on uh, Superman the Animated Series. So, you know, this is actually actually fairly influential which is cool. So, uh yeah, I was I was uh I was a fan of uh, the Superman comics at this time and it was uh it was cool to see it. Um a couple other things that jumped out at me, um Adventures of the Outsiders reprints last year's Christmas Tale from the Baxter series, the Outsiders. And I actually interviewed Mike W. Barr about his Batman Christmas stories for back issue last year. So. Uh, so that just popped out at me. But uh, now over in the regular Outsiders title, which is the Baxter series, Batman is back. In issue number 17, there's even an advertisement in the floppy of this issue, Batman 405, that says, you know, Batman's back. And it's got the the Outsiders looking all stunned with Batman's shadow over him, you know. The Outsiders team, including Batman, takes on Eclipso. And in back issue number 95, back issue again, uh, that I was talking about last time, issue number 95 as an interview with Mike W. Barr. But it also has an article on Eclipso. And uh, the the writer asks him, you know, oh, well, you brought Batman back during the storyline. And he admits that he probably made a mistake by taking Batman out of the team to begin with because sales declined as soon as they took Batman <laughs> out. So <laughs> huh. the, the characters themselves apparently weren't quite as popular as they thought they were without Batman. So there go you figure. go. Go figure. Yeah.
0: Uh, a few other DC comics that came out this month, Wonder Woman issue 2 and The Question issue 2. We had Who's Who, volume 25. This was the vigilante and other characters that began with V. Uh, who's Who in Star Trek number 1? Does that sound familiar Woo-hoo. to you?
1: <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, it I seems like I've talked about that somewhere. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, and similarly, seems like something that I have talked about before, Secret Origins number 12 came out. This was the one with Challengers of the Unknown and the Golden Age Fury. Uh, and one other that seems like it's right up my alley, but I haven't read this one, Elvira's House of Mystery Special number one, uh, which looked like a Christmas horror Elvira special. And I've got to get on that because I like all of those things.
1: You know who drew that cover,
0: don't you? Um, you're going to tell me. Uh, Jose Luis Garcia, Garcia Lopez. Lope. Praise be his name. Be his name. Yes. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else from DC from this month? Captain Adam number one. Oh, Come out. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Jay Jones and the Silver and Gold Podcast Network. Yes. That was a good one. Like, that's... When I was doing the Secret Origins podcast, I was trying to read up on a lot of the comics from this era, figuring out where the kind of statuses of these characters were at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was one that kind of surprised me because I read the first issue of Captain Adam, just trying to give it I, – I never really thought much about the character. But I really dug that first issue and I started reading like the next five or six because they were on Comixology. Uh And I ended up having to kind of just table that because other priorities and other things were getting in the way. But that is a series that I would like to go back to because I was really digging that.
1: Yeah, it, it was uh that was another one where my my friend same friend Grover mm-hmm. uh was buying that one and uh I read I read his copies, you know, and it was uh it was really interesting. Others have pointed this out, but I thought it was really neat how DC used the old Charlton comics mm-hmm. as as the backstory. <laughs> yes. the uh,
0: <yeah>. fake <laughs> that was, story that the, the yeah. Pentagon was putting out to cover their yeah. their mystery. That was brilliant. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was what a stroke of genius that was. And it was it was neat to see, you know, how Captain Adam integrated into the dc universe and there was all that subterfuge and as soon as the heroes found out about it they were obviously at odds with him. and yeah it was uh there was some good stuff all along and, and he fit into that to that uh, world of espionage and you know with suicide squad and they mm-hmm. sort of put, brought firestorm into basically all the john ostrander stuff even though he wasn't writing captain adam at first but yeah. it all it all kind of fit together and i don't know if it was I think it was almost a happy accident that it kind of – some of it all went together. I know some of it was intentional, but, but it really did create this kind of neat little corner of the, of the DC universe that the other heroes occasionally, including Batman as we'll get into, occasionally crossed into. So it was neat. Uh,
0: on the Marvel side of things, I just had a few. Fantastic Four issue 300 came out that month yep. uh, along with Fantastic Four versus the X-Men number two and G.I. Joe yearbook issue three. Yes. that's always been a favorite of mine. So
1: me too. I, I had that's got another silent story, doesn't it? hmm mm-hmm. yep. yep. I had the, I had that one. Yeah, that was a good one. Spider Ham's still going. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that book when it first come out. I don't know why. It, I think I just couldn't find it. It was just one of those books that I just couldn't find on the stand, so I just kind of dropped off with it. But I I dug the crap out of <laughs>
0: Spider Ham. <laughs> I love the idea of it. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any others before we go? Just real quick uh one thing uh because Batman essentially mm-hmm. abandoned the Justice League a few issues earlier but in <laughs> Justice League number 260 uh that is the uh another part in the end of the Justice League storyline and that's where Steel gets irreparably damaged and his grandfather shuts him down which is a shame because he was the one new character in the Detroit League that I actually cared for so yes. I hated to see that happen you know I I just uh yeah of course now vibes on the flash. So what do I know? You know.
0: <laughs> I think they've all, I think all four of them by now have made their an appearance on the DC universe or the the CW verse.
1: Yeah, I will and you know the the other the other day when they did the uh or a couple of weeks ago when they did the uh duet musical crossover you had Martian Manhunter and Vibe on the screen together. <laughs> I was like, whoa, Justice League Detroit. If they just had Steel come over from Legends of Tomorrow and Gypsy come through the portal, I was like, wow, what a reunion, you know?
0: (laughs) All right, folks. Time for us to take a break to play some promos for other podcasts. And after that, we review Batman Year One Part Two. Stick around. I'm Diablo Frank, and I've been a fan of the Amazing Amazon for my entire life. To be truthful, I'm not a typical fan of the Paradise Island set. I'm not big on mythology, and I'm highly critical of the most popular Themysciran stories. I like it when Wonder Woman loses her powers and hangs out with a tiny blind Asian martial arts master named Ai Ching. Or when she works at Taco Bell and helps collect child support for a co-worker from a deadbeat mafioso dad. Or when she rides around on kangaroo ponies from outer space and is a little too into bondage and spanking for the squares. Wonder Woman is great, but I really miss Diana Prince. The reminder that the heroine feels and fails and bleeds like the rest of us that's why i call my podcast about her diana prince wonder woman because i like to remember there's a woman behind all that wonder and i'd like to talk about her if you care to listen on itunes shout engine and internet archive batman 405 has a cover date of march 1987 but according to mike's amazing world of dc comics it went on sale on december 11th 1986 The book costs 75 cents in the U.S., and the cover, of course, is by David Mazzuccelli. And it's just a shot of Batman pulling his cape tight in front of the moon or a spotlight of some kind. What do you think, Chris? Well, this
1: was a heck of a birthday present for me that year because my birthday is December the 12th, so one day before my birthday, uh, my 12th birthday. uh, This is an iconic Batman image. It is deceptively simple, but it just screams, this is Batman. You know, it's so there's so few lines that create Batman, but yet it's evocative. You know, it's he looks like a it's like Batman's inherent cool factor in one cover, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, I love it. It's, it's fantastic. And, it, and in fact, it's so simple, but so powerful that our friend, Michael Bradley of formerly of the Superman Batman podcast, which hopefully will return one day. He sent us a picture of a comic shop somewhere in Ohio. He's not exactly sure where he was on a road trip and stopped in this comic shop. And there was a giant mural of this cover made entirely of Legos. Yeah. It is awesome, and it's going to be in the image gallery. You need to see this.
0: <laughs> yes, this is – and, like, again, we're talking about – like, this is a wall-sized mirror. This is, like, 10 or 11 feet tall by 5, 6 feet wide. I mean, in mm-hmm. proportional dimensions to the comic book. So it's it's intense, and – Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I like that. But no, you're right. This is a a great cover. Very, very simple. I like the color contrast with the purple sort of background that we're not really used to seeing. And something else, because as we kind of talked about and discovered ourselves looking at the last issue in the series... This is actually the first time we're getting Mazzuchelli drawing Batman in this series. He, yeah, Batman did not appear as Batman in issue one or in part one of this. So this is the first time we're seeing it and it's a hell of a debut.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Alright, moving on to the story. Year One, Part Two War is Declared is written by Frank Miller, illustrated by David Mazzuchelli colored by Richmond Lewis, lettered by Todd Klein, and edited by Denny O'Neill. On April 4th, Lieutenant Gordon is stuck in a rain-drenched bumper-to-bumper traffic trying to get to a hostage situation in the Brigham Circle part of Gotham. One of Gordon's few loyal subordinates, Sergeant Merkel, briefs Gordon on the radio. A paranoid schizophrenic named Albert Bloom, recently released from Arkham Asylum, has taken three children hostage in an apartment building. Brandon, the head of Gotham's shoot-first, ask-questions-maybe-later SWAT team, is on the scene and wants his squad to rush the hostage-taker, but Gordon arrives in time to pull rank and bench the tactical team. Then Gordon approaches the apartment building, and in plain view of Albert Bloom, Brandon, Merkel, the rest of the cops, the press, and his pregnant wife Barbara watching on TV, Jim Gordon removes his gun from his holster, puts it on the ground, and walks into the apartment. Inside, Gordon walks up the stairs, bottles his fear, and confronts the crazed hostage taker. When Bloom takes his gun off the kids, pointing it instead right at Gordon's face, Gordon is able to disarm and subdue the man, meaning he punches his lights out. The next day, Brandon complains about Gordon's methods to a sympathetic Commissioner Loeb. At the same time, Jim Gordon practices his marksmanship at the firing range. His hands are steady and his aim is true. He could have shot Albert Bloom dead, but unlike Brandon's SWAT goons, he hates using his gun. That night, while Gordon lies awake in bed, still wondering how he'll raise a son in this hellish place, a strange figure casting the shadow of a bat stalks the rooftops of the city. April 9th. Gordon enjoys a night off of work, a night with Barbara cooking dinner and massaging his shoulders. Then the phone rings. Sergeant Merkel is babbling something about reports of a giant bat. Across town, three kids are boosting a TV out of the window of a 20th floor apartment. With an animalistic growl, Batman leaps down the fire escape between them. One of the robbers is so terrified by the sight of the Batman that he loses his balance and topples over the side of the fire escape. Batman is just as scared, scared of causing a death, even of a criminal, and lunges forward to catch the kid before he falls to his death. But holding the boy up over the fire escape leaves Batman in a vulnerable spot, and the other two robbers attack. One kicks at Batman, the other tries to smash the stolen TV over his head. But the Dark Knight's training and resolve are enough. Even with one hand occupied, he's able to take out the two punks. Then he pulls up the third one, who has passed out from fear, up on the fire escape. So, Three criminals captured and no fatalities. It wasn't graceful, but with a lot of luck, he got the job done. May 15th. Gordon gathers the detective squad in the muster room to pool the reports of the so-called Batman, who, by their numbers, has committed over 70 acts of assault in the last month. Detective Sarah Essen lights Gordon's cigarette, while Detective Flass shares his personal encounter with the Batman and how he ended up with a broken arm and a neck brace. As Flass tells the tale, he received an anonymous tip about a major cocaine delivery and went to arrest the traffickers. He had single-handedly subdued nearly all of them when a hideous black creature with a 30-foot wingspan dropped down in their midst. Flas says bullets have no effect on the bat. Of course, the truth, as we're able to see it on the page, is that Flass was there probably to run security for the delivery, or at the very least collect his payoff for looking the other way but when the Batman arrived, he targeted Flass for a special beating after the crooks were taken care of. On May 19th, the mayor hosts a gathering of Gotham's wealthy elite at his mansion. In attendance is Commissioner Loeb, who brushes off a phone call from Lieutenant Gordon asking for more men and more money to expand the Batman investigation. Loeb views the Batman as nothing more than a distraction for the public, and as such is in no great hurry to bring him down. Also at the mayor's shindig is Carmine Falcone, who tells the commissioner that his criminal empire is under threat, not just from the Batman, but from the crusading assistant district attorney, Harvey Dent. But there's one more attendee that no one at the mansion expected. Batman snuck onto the grounds, silently knocking out the guards and each one of the chauffeurs parked outside. Finally, when he's ready, Batman throws a smoke grenade through the window and then ignites plastic explosives that blow a hole in the wall. Gotham's prime movers and shakers, both in and outside the law, stare aghast at the dark Avenger standing in the smoke. The Batman utters a stern warning. From now on, none of them are safe. The next day, Commissioner Loeb orders Gordon to take down the Batman immediately, no matter the cost. Gee, I wonder if he takes Batman seriously now. On June 2nd, an attractive blonde walks down a dangerous street in the East End. A mugger rushes out to attack her. She screams and runs. Batman watches all of this, but makes no effort to help, because he knows the woman is in no real danger. Because the blonde is actually Detective Essen, and the mugger is another undercover cop. In fact, there are cops all around waiting to pounce on Batman as soon as he appears. But he doesn't. He's wise to their stakeout and stays hidden. June 5th. Carmine Falcone's bodyguards find their boss trussed up naked on his bed. Batman didn't just tie him up. He stole his Rolls Royce and drove it into the river. Falcone orders a hit on the Dark Knight. June 6th. Lieutenant Gordon visits ADA Harvey Dent. The Batman knows where Gordon's men are setting traps for him. Maybe he has a source in the police department or the district attorney's office. Not only that, but he's ramped up his targets on Carmine the Roman Falcone, Gotham's untouchable crime lord that Dent has been trying to bring down forever. Maybe Gordon suspects the assistant district attorney of some extracurricular crime busting in a bat costume. After Harvey supplies Gordon with alibis for all of the confirmed Batman sightings, the lieutenant leaves, and Harvey tells the Batman, who was crouching behind his desk, that he can leave now. In the car, Gordon tells Detective Essen he doesn't really believe Harvey Dent could be the Batman. He's got the passion, but not the means. Batman's got an arsenal of high-tech weapons and gear. That takes money. Sarah shares her cigarette with Gordon and tells him that Bruce Wayne is the richest man in Gotham City, and not just that, Wayne's parents were murdered by a mugger when he was just a kid. This revelation hits Gordon like a shot, but is all too quickly forgotten when their car is nearly plowed into by a delivery truck barreling through the intersection. Gordon swings the car around and comes up alongside the runaway truck. The driver is out of control, maybe having a heart attack. Gordon sees a bag lady up the street, right in the truck's path. He opens his door and leaps for the truck as Sarah takes the wheel. Clinging to the side door, Gordon reaches in through the delivery truck's window. If he can just reach the steering wheel, he can save the woman in the street. But it's too late. He can't turn in time. The truck rushes up to the woman, and out of nowhere, the Batman dives down, tackling the woman out of the path of the runaway truck. The vehicle slams into her shopping cart, throwing Gordon to the hard street. He blacks out for a moment. When he comes to, Sarah is in the middle of the street with her gun drawn on the Batman, and the bag lady is still alive and safe. When Sarah turns her head to check on Gordon, Batman jumps on her, knocking her out before she can shoot. Gordon reaches for his gun, but blacks out again. He gets up moments later. Cops are swarming on the scene as the Batman flees down a blind alley. The cops shoot, one of them striking Batman in the leg. Gordon thinks about how Batman dove in front of the truck to save the homeless woman, and he orders the cops to hold their fire. Batman, bleeding from the gunshot wound, leaps through a boarded-up window at the end of the alley. Inside the tenement building, he starts to make his way up the stairs. If he can make it to the roof before Gordon locks down the area, he might slip through the police net. Gordon tells Merkel to take a squad of cops up to the roof of the building, but the sergeant hands Gordon the radio, telling him the commissioner doesn't want the cops moving on the building. Commissioner Loeb has put Brandon and the SWAT team in charge of the operation. Gordon is about to challenge the commissioner when he hears the sound of the SWAT's helicopter flying overhead. Commissioner Loeb said the building was clear of everyone except one or two derelicts that no one would miss, not if it meant killing the Batman. Brandon's helicopter doesn't land. It drops a firebomb on the building. Batman is still inside when every window and door in the tenement explodes outward in a shower of glass and flame. end of part two. So Chris, your thoughts?
1: <laughs> it's okay, okay. <laughs> Oh this is you know, uh, wow, what a you know what a great introduction for Batman. I mean, it's odd that we didn't really in, didn't really miss him last issue until, you know, <laughs> we got to thinking about, it, oh, there's no Batman. Uh, and, and part of that's probably where, you know, we've all gotten used to reading it in one chunk in a trade paperback or right, right. hardcover or something. But, yeah, I mean, they do a great job of of introducing Batman here. This is uh, and it's a nail biter. I mean, it's uh it's a, yeah, obviously this is Batman. year one. So he survives. But it's a heck of a cliffhanger ending, too. So, yeah. fantastic.
0: Yeah, I was thinking like as much as we praised and as much as as much love and affection we heaped on the first chapter, I think this one was better. Yeah. Um because The first chapter was sort of the origin story. We get to see what makes these characters, what pushes them to the point where they're going to become the men they are now. What will it take to get Bruce to put on the costume? What will it take to make Gordon be that champion and decide, no, he is going to fight against the corruption in the city? We saw that by the end of chapter one in the last issue. Now we actually get to see them doing their jobs doing what they do we get to see batman be batman we get to see gordon be a cop investigating asking questions interrogating witnesses we get a nice little action we get their first encounter even though it's it's rushed it's they don't like really necessarily have a moment but you know, I I just love that that moment, that, that whole action set piece. Like that's so cinematic. I can't believe we haven't seen that, where Gordon is trying to stop this runaway truck from killing a civilian, and he can't quite do it. But Batman is there and saves the life. And that moment is going to change how Gordon sees this Batman for the rest of his time. And he's, and maybe because he's the only one who sees it. It, it kind of puts Gordon in this weird position where he's kind of alone in this thing. But that will come up a lot more in the next two issues. So. Right. Um, uh, just kind of going through the the beats, starting with the beginning again. Uh, after the cover, we have this title page mm-hmm. uh, where we see Chapter 2, War is Declared. We get our credits. And again, we have this little blurb of text. He has trained and planned and waited 18 years. He thinks he's ready. And then it's an image of Bruce in the Batman costume, but not quite putting on the cape and cowl yet. He's holding it in his hands. It's this moment where he's getting ready. He's taking a breath, and you can see that he's he's committing himself to this. And meanwhile, like in the background, we just kind of get like the the image of the windows, like he's in Wayne Manor still.
1: Yeah, the floppy original version. Man, it, it, it's another one of those shocking moments where I first opened this and I almost gasped because <laughs> the, the background, the wall of Wayne Manor is all in magenta. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> so different. It's so different than the collected version. Wow. And Batman's completely in white. It's just black ink and everything else is white there's no color on him huh. uh, it's it's just like wow it's just like smacks you upside the head <laughs> and it's still richmond lewis but it's just the uh, she just did a very different version she had very limited color palette to work with on the old you know newsprint edition here so
0: right right yeah <laughs> Something else that I just kind of noticed again, all the things that we seem so much more obvious when you have to really scrutinize these things for a podcast. Uh, but I just noticed in the first part of the story, we never saw Batman. Mm-mm. In this issue, we never really see Bruce. Except for this cover image, like when he's got the mask off. But still, he's kind of in shadows. You could say, is he in Bruce Wayne mode or is he in Batman mode? But we don't see him out of the costume in this issue. We don't get any sense of Wayne Manor or the life of Bruce Wayne. We don't get any mention of him until the end, just as a possible suspect. Mm. Uh, this is really he's all Batman throughout this story.
1: Well that's neat because you know it 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 kind of it works well with the last issue where you know he he I shall become a bat and yeah. and you know we we talked about how he, he it almost seems like his uh there's several visual cues that his identity was completely subsumed by the bat so it's it's kind of neat in this one we don't see bruce wayne and and because i'm a big fan of mask of the phantasm after he put the cowl on i know he just walked by alfred and alfred went my god you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was a good moment oh yeah (laughs) We'll we'll have to do a commentary episode on that someday yes definitely uh, we get another first in this chapter. This is our first time seeing Barbara Gordon, uh, mm-hmm. at least within this storyline. Uh, and our first image of her is her watching the television and we see she's got the baby shirt she's clearly showing uh, yeah. and she might be knitting or something, but she's watching TV. She's watching her husband possibly walking out to his death, which is gotta be just utterly horrifying but uh, it's it's a nice little intro to her and that opening scene with Gordon, ah, I I love that scene so much, we get so much characterization there, I mean first he's just he's locked in bumper to bumper traffic he finds out that the SWAT team is ready to move in so he takes, he turns the wheel and drives up on the sidewalk to yeah. race to get there first because he's not going to let the, gu- the SWAT goons go in guns blazing and get these kids killed it's a great contrast because you know he he describes we get his his inner monologue throughout here and he describes how he is scared he you know is is fighting every urge and everything and he thinks he could be killed but he ends up disarming the situation as peacefully as possible uh well other than getting the guy to surrender i mean it, he still beats him up but Right, <laughs> uh, but then, in the next page, like you know, you get Brandon complaining to the Chief you know about these these methods and how stupid it is, and you know kind of questioning Gordon's uh, efficiency or his techniques or how hard hearted he might be is he, is he too soft for this job? Well, we saw in the last issue that Gordon is plenty tough because he beat up flass. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this scene is also contrasted. We see what Gordon is capable of doing with his gun. He's a good shot i mean yeah. he's he's a trained police officer he knows how to shoot to kill but he has that moment where he says i hate the gun and i was like that's that's something that batman would say too and it mm-hmm. really sort of without them really knowing each other at this moment because we haven't had a scene with the batman yet but just having him with that philosophy it's like that's why these two are going to end up being sort of partners because of a line like that
1: you know it's it and i was going to bring this up later but might as well bring it up now i I really do like this opening scene. I mean it it you know we'll get into the artwork we we can fully gush about it now yeah. that we've done the spotlight, but I mean, you can just smell the exhaust uh-huh. and the rain uh in these panels uh with Mezzicelli. but the fact that Gordon disarms this guy if this if this was now, and they were trying to show how good Gordon is, he would shoot the guy in the head right, and the kids would be unharmed, but he would kill the guy and you know if Miller was doing it now that's <laughs> yeah. what would happen and miller would batman miller's batman of the the, i know we're not supposed to talk about but his all-star batman (laughs) would have run the bag lady over himself i mean you know so i mean that's one thing i love about this book is that the heroic ideal is still intact you know i mean it's this is a gritty awful world they live in but they still have the moral fortitude that i like to see my heroes have and uh that that's what's so refreshing. That you know, I can go back to this and read it, and it's it's got the level of, of realism that, that uh, Hollywood thinks that you know all superhero well one you know company thinks all superhero movies should have. But it's also got uh, a great heart to it, you know, and uh, you know just <laughs> moral fiber for lack of a better <laughs> a better term, you know. It's it, it's refreshing that it's still there. I
0: completely agree. And and I think you you nailed it. The heroic ideal is still in place in the story because I think a lot of people – and I myself am am guilty of accusing Frank Miller of this, of sort of setting the tone for the ultra-grim and gritty version of Batman that we get today, the uncompromising, unrelenting Batman that is just too casual and too cavalier with human life. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that in this one. I think you are absolutely right. There is a little bit more of an old-fashioned – because we see that in two different scenes here. We see that with Gordon where he is unwilling to take a life. And Gordon would be righteous in doing that. I mean, other than – I mean, Batman is still a vigilante working outside the law. Gordon as a cop – could kill that guy with impunity, that would be a righteous shooting, sure, but he doesn 't want to do that because for Gordon, life is still sacred he want, He believes in a world where no one should have to die, and that was the world that created Batman, and I think a lot of people <clears throat> Zack Snyder, forget about that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But, and then we see that again with Batman's first mission, and it doesn't go as smoothly as he po- It's a It's a clumsy fight, but yeah. what happens is he jumps down, his presence terrifies these guys, which is what he expected, but he wasn't taking into account the where they're actually fighting, that they're on this cramped little fire escape, and one of the guys takes a tether over the side, and Batman has to reach out and grab him, and he like almost breaks his shoulder, holding this guy up. Meanwhile, yeah. the other guys are kicking at his head and trying to knock him down, and Basically fighting with one hand and his feet to to knock these other two guys out, but it's yeah he could have let that guy fall to his death, but he didn't. He put himself in danger to save that life.
1: Yeah, so. I mean, it, and you know, and I like that you know, Gordon. They find out that this guy, which which is actually a little quibble of mine, this guy was from Arkham Asylum, but he didn't have a criminal record. So why was he at Arkham? Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane. <laughs>
0: uh, good point. Good point.
1: <laughs> but, you know, Gordon, you know, that was probably running through Gordon's head. This guy has problems. He's right. not, he doesn't have a criminal record. He hasn't done anything like this before. So he does, you know, he doesn't want to put a bullet in this guy's head if he can stop him some other way, you know. A lot of modern writers nowadays would just have him like i said, just put a i mean you'd see the guy you know there'd be a tense moment, and then all of a sudden the guy would have a hole in his head, and he'd he'd drop, and the kid would go running away from him, and that'd be the end of the scene and Gordon might feel a little bad about it, but you know that would be your action moment of the movie, the tense setup of how a badass Gordon is, you know he's a good he's a good cop, but he's yeah. you know he's he's he has a conscience, but he's willing to do what he has to do, you know which <laughs> You know, I think so. I, I, it's nice that he doesn't do that. It's, it's like I said, again, refreshing.
0: Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. On page uh, six, maybe on. It's the night of April 6th. Our first shot of Batman running across the rooftops. I love this shot so much. This just silent panel. There's like no words or anything to interfere with this. It's just him along the roof. You see like the, the water towers. You see laundry <laughs> held up underneath it. And I just I had this craziest memory The first computer that we had... It was in my brother's bedroom... Which after he moved out became my bedroom... But our first computer... He used to use, like, Microsoft Paint or something like that and just do, like, uh-huh. kind of, like, do, like, his own little designs and his own little image. He was he was a better artist than me by, by far. But I remember he did, just, like, with Microsoft Paint, just, like, using, like, black and blue, did a version of this image. And that was, like, our desktop wallpaper on that computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it, 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 I mean, it looked close enough. I mean, it's just, it's all silhouettes and a lot of straight lines except for the bat. And, but it was cool. But I just remember that being on there for a while, and I thought that was so cool. So it's so, yeah, I've always loved that as just an image of Batman. That's, yeah.
1: Well, it, it's it's really it's a really nice introductory image because the figure of Batman is tiny, his cape spreading out, but the city looks big. It's dark. It's scary. You know, it's like he's this little tiny, you know, tiny being in this huge, ugly world, you know. Uh, so I think that, I mean, it kind of it shows, you know, the stage that he set himself upon. Right.
0: Yeah, and the, the size, the, the scale, he does look small. Nobody knows him yet. He's a, he's a small figure in this world. He's still a mystery. He's still something you would have to look out your window at just the right time to be able to see this. And that sort of lends What's- into the kind of urban myth, the urban legend aspect of the character, that nobody really would believe in this thing for a long time until they had harder proof.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Later on that page, we get our our first reference to Superman. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do because Bar- Barbara says, "Don't have to go to Metropolis for a Man of Steel," as she's rubbing Jim's <laughs> shoulders. <laughs> We're still in the DCU, <laughs> yep, yep.
0: and it's I like that too. It didn't have to be any more obvious than that. Um, it's nice to sort of put this on a, a timeline, though. That at least at this point, Superman does predate Batman. Superman yeah, is as, he super, as a character, I, and I agree with that. Superman, they it can be close; they can be like close to each other in their debuts. But Superman should be around before Batman is, I think. So,
1: yes, <laughs> Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: um, the the panel on the page we've already talked about the where Batman comes down and stops the guys from well he doesn't stop them from stealing the TV because <laughs> the TV hits the pavement.
0: But. I know. I thought about that too. I was like, <laughs> you yeah, didn't you didn't save any of that property just
1: but panel 3 where batman's reaching out for the kid yep. that's my trevor von eden panel i can see it yeah it's it's the it's the kind of sketchy lines underneath the eyes and his mouth Yeah. Uh, the, the sketchy lines around his mouth that looks like and i think masachelli has actually commented on you know he was a fan of of trevor von eden's work i believe he i believe i've read that somewhere so i don't think trevor von eden came in and drew this panel i'm not even sure he was referencing him at all, but it just that's the one panel that's always made it it's like, man, it looks like Trevor Von Eden drops in <laughs> and threw this panel even before we knew all this strange connection if there is one. So uh yeah, that that's what I just wanted to bring it up while we were going over it.
0: No, I I see it too. The like if not for the ears, I think the ears sort of set it apart as this early year one Batman. But if mm-hmm. not for the ears, like, that could have been referenced or something from one of Von Eden's earlier Batman stories, like the annual or something else. But, no, good, yeah, good catch. Oh, oh and I like, I like the description on that page, as he, he kind of, like, mentions, I come in close on the one who looks the strongest, throw him a growl I've brought all the way from Africa. Mhm. I just, I just like that idea that like just to to further enhance his image of like this this monster this creature that Batman would growl like that like a jungle cat when he straight when he leaps into action or something like that like that's just a really cool detail that I've never heard but I think that's great.
1: Well, see, that's why I think I mean everybody likes to make fun of Christian Bale's Batman voice, even though I think <laughs> most people most people like him as Batman, you know. But sure. yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, and I, and I do, and uh, but you know they like to but. Honestly, it got a little nuts in the Dark Knight in a few places, but I liked I liked it better in, in Begins. He went a little overboard with it in Dark Knight, but I liked that he did that because I remembered this. I figured, you know, and of course, then Kevin Michael Keaton gives us a little raspier voice, and then Kevin Conroy does. But the the put on growly voice makes sense if you're going to reference Miller, which they did a lot in those movies, you know. So. It you know it, it's it's there it's it's on the page right there.
0: So <laughs> I'm trying to think of now like what if Batman had or what if Bruce Wayne had such like a signature voice like that you would like always like that no matter how hard like he dressed as Batman like you would just like hear him talking to it like like imagine Bruce Wayne had like Bobcat Goldthwaite's voice <laughs> and you just see
2: <laughs> and
0: like all of a sudden like you just see Batman and you're like um. Bobcat? It's like no, I'm I'm Batman. It's like no, I, I, I recognize that voice, dude. Or or what if like what if Bruce Wayne talked with a lisp? Like just like what if he had any number of just kind of like vocal like giveaways, whatever that he would have to disguise his voice because otherwise, like, um, yeah, I Bruce, I talked to you. I've had meetings with you well Val Kilmer
1: does have kind of a lisp so yeah, uh, you, know, like, sure. <laughs> you know all the different the Batman it, like almost every Batman actor's had some kind of facial beauty <laughs> mark or mole or something that's yeah. like you know make sure you put the mask
0: <laughs> over their that part of their face you know so
1: <laughs> uh, good stuff
0: um, once we get to the scene with the uh, the cops in the muster room, first I like the three different artist interpretations of the Batman behind Gordon.
1: Man, Bat, Dracula, and a pretty good Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, decent,
0: yeah. So, uh, I remember when I saw this, the first time I saw Flask with the neck brace and the broken arm, I was like, holy shit, is that what Gordon did to him at the end of issue one or at the end of part one? Like, I, I thought that too, yeah. yeah. Like, we don't. And then, like, we, I, I, this is gr- just a great detail because Flash is, like, the one is like, no, Batman, he, he's not human. He's not, like, he's totally spooked. And when he tells the story, I love the unreliable narrator aspect of these of these panels where it's just like, he's trying, he's like, yeah, I was called in by Nano's tip. I'm busting the guy. And we see here he's collecting his payoff money.
1: Yeah, it's it's so great that the, the text versus the image, yeah. the juxtaposition of them is, is, is fantastic. And, you know, where Batman's dropping down on top of them, it reminds me of the intro that Miller has in Batman Year One in the collected version, the trade paperback I have. He talks about I don't know what Batman comic he was reading, but I'm assuming it was a uh, one of the annuals that reprinted the old Golden Age stories. Mm-hmm. And he talks about this you know giant winged creature leaped from the rooftop, and it, it that that made me think that you know that what he thought of as Batman. Is the same thing that Flass is thinking of, you know, uh, the kid version of, of Frank Miller in the, in the uh, yeah. spooked uh, Detective Flasser. It's <laughs> all <laughs> kind of all the same thing, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, how much do you love the whole sequence at the mayor's house?
1: Oh, that's, that's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's cool that they, you know, they show the mechanics of, of, of how
0: Batman works, you know. it's, <laughs> it's uh, up, up, up to and including – he's skulking around with a backpack. Yeah. He's got, he's got this backpack slung over his shoulder with all of his gear. Like
1: Yeah. So Batgirl Burnside, you did not invent the bat- backpack. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, he's sneaking around to each one of these limousines, knocking out the drivers, taking out the armed security guard, planting explosives and a floodlight <laughs> for dramatic emphasis. Right.
1: <laughs> so Bruce Wayne went to Lowe's right before he <laughs> I need a floodlight. <laughs> What water what, did you want, sir? Oh, it's got to be pretty bright. Yeah. <laughs> For justice. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Wayne's got a Lowe's card.
0: <laughs> um, this is our first introduction to Carmine Falcone or Falcone. I always just assumed his name was Falcone, like Al Capone. I just Mm -hmm. sort of thought it was that. But, uh, I mean, he will end up becoming a major player when Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale bring him back for the long Halloween. Uh, And, of course, he's in Batman Begins, too yes Um, but I liked his character I liked his little introduction Uh, I like how beforehand he we get again we get a lot of like character details within just like the dialogue of him talking to the commissioner him complaining about the Batman but also complaining about Harvey Dent before we've really seen Harvey Dent Uh, as Batman is skulking around he hears the commissioner talking about talking to Gordon and from Batman's perspective his, his little journal entry he's like Lieutenant Gordon I've been hearing his name often all the right people seem to hate him yes and it's just like a little, he's sort of like cataloging that. Is like maybe, maybe this guy can be an ally. And I like this detail more than in Batman Begins where Gordon was there the night that Bruce's parents died. Um, yeah. Where he like kind of, he kind of seeks out Gordon before he's got the costume and everything. And he says like, you know, you're one of the good ones. Because at that point, Gordon hadn't really been doing anything in Batman Begins up to that point. Yeah, it was sort of like Batman made Gordon a good cop in Batman Begins, whereas this one they really are on parallel tracks. So. Yes,
1: right. Uh, th- there's one. There's one panel that's uh, it's the third panel on page 14 uh, where you know Batman puts the he's getting ready to put the fire out uh, in the little tray and, <laughs> and the 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 way the lights hitting him and you can't see his ears he could be Zorro right there. Yes. And and I love that because obviously Zorro, Batman pretty much is Zorro with a bat motif. Um, and you can just imagine Zorro coming into a, a hacienda full of dons and, and commandants there in yep. old California and, and doing the exact same thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe smiling and laughing a little bit more about it as he did it. But uh, – and I love me some Zorro, so uh, I've always liked that. <laughs> and yeah, can but... I just say one thing about this sequence? Screw Kevin Smith, OK? Just screw <laughs> Kevin Smith. <laughs> Don't piss all over such an awesome secrets in a comic book and quit being so obsessed with bodily fluids. What did That's he say I'm about concerned. this one? Oh, dude, it was in one of those things he did. I swear it's like it was one of those cacophony or one of those books he did. He said like Batman had a bladder spasm when the explosion went off <laughs> in this sequence. Yeah, he was talking to somebody and said that. I'm like, are you kidding? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to. You might want to just cut this out. I don't even know if I want to put this. No, no. I, I, I don't know if I want in. to put that in.
0: No, because I, I, that is that is stupid enough that I want to include that so we can all shame Kevin Smith for coming up with an idea that's stupid.
1: I mean, it's you know don't don't crap. And I'm, I'm going to have another problem when we get to the, to the end of this series, and I'm just going to put that out there. Don't take something that another creator did and just take a dump all over it. You know by. <laughs> By casting what was done in in an awful light, that you can't read the original without going, oh yeah, that idiot did that. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just. And I like some of Kevin Smith's other stuff, but that yes, was yes. just, you know, don't do that, man. Come on, you're you're you can be better than that. You know, don't do that. <laughs>
0: To a much lesser extent, but still, it, it reminds me of how in the New Fifty Two, Tim Drake did not discover Batman's identity on his own. He was following a trail that Bruce Wayne deliberately left for him to find.
1: Oh, brother! I didn't know
0: that. <laughs> yeah, it was stupid. Uh, oh, anyway, geez. back to that page though—that amazing page of Batman in the smoke in the in the crater that he's just blown in the wall with like the fire from the food and everything. Again, like if I had you know an extra twenty thousand dollars lying around, I would wanna buy the original art for this page.
1: Oh yeah. That'd be a good one to have. I mean yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna have a page from the interiors of this series, that'd yeah. probably be one of the best ones to have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I like that's the next page of the sequence. How well? Okay, so uh, the the transition from the commissioner doesn't take Batman seriously. He doesn't think Gordon should waste his time on this thing. It's just a distraction, you know, distracting the people from the actual corruption that the commissioner is doing. Right. And once this moment is over, he's like, "You get out there. You get your ass out there and bring me that vigilante." It's like, and like Gordon, (laughs) it's like there's like a ghost of a smile on his face. He's like, "Yes, sir."
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's a nice little that's a nice little. It's one that's the only panel for that date. Yeah, too. I like that. That's you know, <laughs> one one thing that really it, you know when I was rereading this, I, you know, I I was reading the dialogue when it showed Lieutenant Essen undercover, you know, walking down the uh, the, the street or Detective Essen walking down the street. And at first, I thought it was I thought I remembered Gordon saying this because uh, the the narrator points out how she knows how to walk in heels. And that's something that a lot of women don't know how to do nowadays. I thought that was Gordon, you know, part of Gordon becoming infatuated with yeah. her. No, that's Batman's dialogue. <laughs> so it's like, oh, well, apparently uh, Essen is just, she's the bee's knees because, you know, all the guys. She looks like Kim Basinger, which is uh, odd considering that Kim Basinger becomes, right. you know, important. And in, in, uh, let's not uh, do the Vicky Vale thing again. But, you know. <laughs>
0: Uh, uh, no yeah it's it's clear that she is meant to, i mean she's got and we'll see that later on in like close-ups of her when she's in the car with gordon like she's got like old hollywood style looks like she's she's got that look of like a a woman in a crime noir story or something um
1: yeah she's got that veronica um, lake kind of look yeah, about exactly her or so. yeah so.
0: yeah i i like the moment when gordon is talking to dent this is our first moment with dent and what do you think about the fact that Batman is actually in the office this whole time, crouching behind the desk, and that he and Dent are working together?
1: I I, I mean, it's, it's a very brief scene, and Harvey Dent isn't in this nearly as much as you think he is. Right. And I think part of that's because the long Halloween uh, used him so much, and because – it became, you know, this became part of the new dynamic, obviously, between Batman and Two-Face, that they actually had been allies. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, before, yeah, he was a good district attorney, he was on the right, but, you know, now we actually see that he was actually Batman's first ally in Gotham City. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's, I, I like it. Now, now, Gordon has been shown as being so competent before but yet Batman is able to hide in plain sight, basically. But that is, you know, how many times has Batman disappeared on Gordon or entered Gordon's office over the years and spooked him? And, you know, so he can just do that to Gordon, you know? It's just (laughs) part of his mystique that, you know, as good as Gordon is, as alert as Gordon is, Batman's better at that type of stuff, you know? So he can just do that, you know? you can go all ninja on him, you know? So...
0: Batman should have, like, growled off. He's like, I'm not hiding behind your desk. I'm searching <laughs> yeah. for evidence.
1: Yeah. I'm not Bruce Wayne either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Bruce Wayne.
2: I'm Jack <laughs> Pegg <King Arthur. laughs> um
0: Um... Uh. As Gordon and Essen are driving away, a very sort of comfortable moment between them. She lights a cigarette and gives it to him. Uh, he says he can taste her lipstick on the cigarette, and he says, I could kiss you, because she just put the idea of, like, Bruce Wayne as a possible suspect in front of them. Uh, this sort of connection will lead to something that we see, uh, yes. but then it's, like, almost immediately like cut off before they can investigate because of this situation with the runaway truck. And like I was saying at the beginning, this is such a good action set piece that's so cinematic that you'd love to see, like, the tension in this scene.
1: So. Right. And, you know, it's it's amazing, you know, Mazicelli, we haven't quite waxed his car enough yet. <laughs> uh, he, he, you know, he, he's got such a simplistic, you know, uh, uh, a deceptively simple, like I said, style. But, you know, he doesn't really exaggerate the human form like most comic book artists were like take like basically the guy that wrote the language of comic book art Jack Kirby yeah and uh, you know an action sequence uh, has to be bombastic you know it has to you know exaggerated perspective and and you know energy you know lines and kirby crackle and you know which don't get me wrong i love that it, <laughs> i mean I, it's mm-hmm. it's my bread and butter it's fantastic but mazicelli is you know, in a way like Alex Toth and other artists like that. I mean, there's a very strong Alex Toth feel to Mazzuccelli. All the movements are very lyrical. They're very, they're, they're not bombastic. The, the figures don't stretch and bend. They still look human, yep. uh, but yet it's no less dynamic. So it's, it's, that is a feat in and of itself. No one looks, when Batman's tackling the woman mm-hmm. and the cart is being crumbled and, gordon's like falling away from the truck all this i mean it's it's there's such an energy and uh, an urgency to it it's and it doesn't have any speed lines it doesn't have you know batman you know coming at the camera with the woman with his you know arms and head huge and gordon in the background they're all almost in the exact same plane yeah but yet it's it's just as visceral that's just damn that's magic almost that's <laughs> That's comic book magic, right there, is what it is. I mean, it's because he's not using the, and I'm, I don't want to say shortcuts, but he's not, he's not using the previously accepted language of superhero comic book art right. in a way. But it's still telling it in just as exciting of a way as if, you know, a Jack Kirby type or even a Neil Adams type, even Neil Adams would exaggerate forms more than, than Mazzucelli will here and uh that that just jumped out at me this time I was like well that that's what why this guy's so damn good because he can <laughs> he still gives you all the kapal of a superhero comic he doesn't he doesn't alter his style from the the super quiet moments of Gordon talking to dent in his office
0: yeah i mean i just i I don't know enough about the language the vocabulary of art to really to get into it to explain why I love it. Um, I just know that it's it's so good to look at. There there is more of a naturalistic look to it than somebody like a Jim Lee or or Neil Adams even or something like that. But the characters all seem to have the right kind of gravity about them, the right kind of like weight and everything. And and you feel that and you sense that. So the an action beat like this feels true. This feel mm-hmm. and and there is the, like, the uh, things are moving at the right pace and everything. It doesn't. It feels more heroic, more exciting because the characters look more real. Because right. it, this isn't a superhero moment. This is just somebody doing a superhero save uh, yes. in, in a sort of crazy uh, event. But yeah, that's – I don't know, it's good. And just – the whole pacing of the the scene everything just like the different cutaways the small like scenes from Gordon like opening the door uh telling her to take the wheel the close up of the woman with like the headlights shining on her batman swinging from the from the street lamp and everything and it's cool and it's what's great is like if Batman was not there, you would still say, Holy shit, Jim, that was a really cool thing you tried to do. Like that was an epic heroic moment to do to jump out of your own moving car to right. try to stop this runaway truck. Like yeah. this does not make Gordon look less heroic. This does not undercut his goodness. He put himself in extreme danger to save a homeless woman, and mm-hmm. it was it was going to be futile. It wasn't going to be enough because he was trying to do something that is superhumanly, that is impossible for a normal person to do. So he was going to fail, but he was going to try because right. he's a good man. Batman can do the impossible because – Yes, he's human, but that's that's the conceit that's why we love the character because anybody who says Batman is the most human superhero does not know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> is he mortal? Does he have superpowers? No, but he's still a superhero. He is. He is so far above normal, and we expect and we demand him to do inhuman things, superhuman things within the constraints of a human frame. Right. So he, yes, he can dive in front of this truck. He can swing out in front of it and save a woman, even though he doesn't have superpowers or spider powers or Green Lantern powers right because he's batman
1: well it's like you know um, like james bond or yes. indiana jones yes. you know they and and Indy gets beat up more than than <laughs> and is you know and, and screws up more along <laughs> the way than james bond does but you know they they're going to they're going to pull it off right. you know right. uh a normal person would die right. but uh <laughs> but uh, and they're just supposed to be just normal people uh you know with a good amount of training especially from james bond but just like Batman, you know, they they can they're they're like a heightened human being, you know, yes. <laughs> it's yes. like they live in this other plane of existence, whereas Gordon, you know, is has always been portrayed as even if it, it, when he's been a good cop and a competent cop, he's still not had those crazy, super heroic moments until maybe the Snyder run where he actually became Batman or whatever, filled in for Batman.
0: Right. um, Because Gordon, in spite of his goodness, no matter what his intentions and his heart, Gordon can't change Gotham City by himself. Right. He'll try, and he'll try and save this life. He'll try and, like, move this truck out of the way, but he can't because he's just a man. He can't save Gotham. This was the reason why I was never interested in the TV show Gotham. Yeah. Like, forgetting the fact that Bruce Wayne was just a kid, it was the fact that, it was like, Gordon is not the main character of the story. He's not who you want to focus on because he's fighting a losing battle. He can't win until Batman shows up. So call me at season 14 or whatever when you get Batman on the show.
1: (laughs) So. Exactly. You know, and, and that's a good point to bring up. You know, in the first issue, you know, when in the, the comments section, we got a lot of, well, you know, like Sisquid even said, of course Gordon's a protagonist. Right. Well, they're, they're both, they're like dual protagonists, right. really. And that comes forward in this one, especially because I think there's equal amounts of focus on Gordon and Batman. Right. Uh, there's equal amounts of dialogue, captions, uh, journal entries, whatever you want to call it. Um, Then you know, of course, you know, we've got the difference, like we pointed out last time of Batman's is in cursive and and Gordon's is in print. But, you know, so it's we're getting we're getting inside both their heads more now. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, that's that's why Gotham didn't hold my interest beyond the first two or three episodes either, because it's like, you know, ultimately, if Batman's not in it, I, I don't. I don't care. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. I just don't, you know, that's, I come for Batman. You know, it's like, I like Gordon as a character and, and I think he can be portrayed. Like we said, I I love the hell out of Gary Oldman's portrayal of Gordon in the, the the Nolan trilogy. And I mean, you you know, a dark Knight rises has some, has some problems, but I mean, when when uh, Blake comes into Gordon's hospital room thinking he's going to be getting assassinated, and, and <laughs> Gordon's taking those guys out, that's fantastic. And oh. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> you know. And, and when he catches the Joker in the Dark Knight, you know, is we've got you, you son of a bitch. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's that's fantastic. So I mean, I like Gordon, but I, if Batman's not there? I'm not that not as interested.
0: And that's the difference. Even like with a comic like GCPD or Gotham Central. Yeah, I I would follow. I love those stories. They were basically police procedurals with Batman in the periphery. He might show up once every three or four or five issues, but Mm -hmm. that was okay because I knew they were dealing with Batman's rogues in a world with Batman. Right. The TV series was the police dealing with Batman's rogues in a world without Batman. I was like, that, forget that doesn't make linear sense to me. But also, why would you spend your why would you waste your narrative on that? But anyway, right. so for okay, <laughs> so moving beyond the show, like yeah, it's all of that is to say, I I love the art and I really love this issue. Um, as, as much as I gush over part one, I think this one was better because we get to see our heroes doing what they do. We don't have to p- get them into position of being the heroes. They're there now. Turn them loose and see what they can do.
1: Right. You know, it's it's interesting too what we're talking about, uh, Mazicelli's art. His Batman – was hugely influential just the way he drew Batman because, yeah, Miller had given Batman the pouch belt. And, and in the other part of the last two parts of The Dark Knight, he had he went back to the, the uh, no oval bat symbol and everything. Uh, but, you know, and, and going and doing a Batman Year One story would make sense. He wouldn't have the oval. But casting, going back to putting Batman, all the blue elements being black with just occasional highlights and uh, having a very realistic-looking utility belt – and you know I mean that that corset looks carried forward in all the Batman legends of the Dark Knight that were set during this period that's this is now the look of Batman uh, post crisis in his early years this is what Batman looked like you know almost yep. every flashbacks even in the Secret Origins story we covered in the last episode of Secret Origins uh, in the from the trade paperback Dick Giordano no less who drew Batman <laughs> in the Bronze Age drew Mazzuchelli Mazzuchelli's Batman when he showed batman in the flashback to his when he first put the suit on so if that doesn't show you how influential it was i don't know what does because you've had one of the premier batman artists adopt this look in that instance you know Mm -hmm. and you know and of course this look influences uh the animated series with the you know more black less blue and then of course the new batman adventures is pretty much the look and that carries on into you know other versions and you can you know Ben Affleck's Batman costume is a little bit Dark Knight and a little bit this. It's, you know, so for only four issues (laughs) and no further Batman work other than a few who's who pages, you know, he made a hell of a mark on Batman, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, And it's funny because I said he was, you know, uh, similar to Alex Toth. Well, Alex Toth designed uh perhaps the most simplistic version of batman that many of us grew up knowing the super friends version yeah he designed that and then you've got masacelli designing one of the most sophisticated versions of batman that we knew in, in our youth so it's it's kind of funny because they all they they kind of come from a similar their their comic art styles are very similar so it's 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 interesting how that how that turned out like that
0: yeah yeah it's true This is like a sort of streamlined, almost minimalist, trying to get back to like golden age roots, but oh.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Mhm.
0: Well, any final thoughts on this issue?
1: Uh, When Batman's running down the alleyway and gets shot in the leg, he looks very much like Adam West right there. All (laughs) he always has to be. I could. mean, Adam West was. If he, he, I think he actually, him and Robin were fake shot once on the show when they (laughs) supposedly turned bad in a Penguin episode, but. It just, you know, it's it, – if he had a bomb over his head, you know. you know
0: <laughs> I, I think part of it is like the shortness of the cape because it's flowing behind him. Yeah. The shortness of the ears and just kind of like the wideness, the thickness of the chest and everything. It's – yeah, I can
1: I can see that, yeah. You know, the kind of leathery look of yep. his of his yep. costume looks like the kind of satiny that yep. – I mean that's when I – like I said last time when I first saw the artwork, I'm like, ooh, it's, it's Adam West and he's pissed, you know. So <laughs> –
0: <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take another short break, but when we come back, we will have your listener feedback from last episode. Don't go away. 229 different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes presented across seven comic book issues. A new mini series as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the irredeemable shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? Who the legion of superheroes. in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. Nightcast Episode 9 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Andrew in Belfast, Ange at drange 70 ApexWorks. Bat at Shapirek, Bill Bear, Capitan Chile, Chris at BTO and Bat Books. And I'm going to say right now, I know I realize that the BTO part of his name is for Batgirl to Oracle, but I was really hoping that he's a fan of Batman and Bachman Turner Overdrive. <laughs> nice. Uh, also, Codeman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics Tweets, Dark Thess, Dean the Artist, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, FKA Jason, Gregor Russo, Jared Albrecht, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Ball, Josh Carr, Justice's First Dawn, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Peyton Presgrove, Professor Frenzy, Raoul Sylvester, Raymond T Jacques, Rebecca Buckland, Robert Lewis, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sam at Monroe and Army Seventy Six G. Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Terrence Castanguay, Tony Wolf, Travels Bookhouse, Treasury Comics, Viandra S. Monisieff, and Warlock Thanos Podcast.
1: Over on Facebook, the last episode received likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Andrew Leyland, Brian Craig, Brian Morris, Charlie Niemeyer, Chip Deese, Comic Book Cover Story, Daniel Doherty, Debeche, Gene Hendricks, H. Daniel Rybolt, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, John Trumbull, Jonathan Dye, Josh Yoder, Jules Boyle, Kyle Benning, Mark Adams, Max Romero, Pat Sampson, Patrick Anno, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Scott Dunnan, Sean Merrick, Simon Richardson, and Stephen Bird.
0: Also on Facebook, Gene Hendricks really liked your quote from the last episode when you said "Mask of the Phantasm" is the same idea but with a lot less hookers. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was one of my more inspired uh, (laughs) things. I'm I'm, I'm done for the year. That's it. (laughs) That was a good one. Uh, Kyle Benning said he didn't mind the wrinkle regarding Scott Snyder's Court of Owls, Secret Society of Gotham elites, being behind the murder of Bruce's parents. In fact, Kyle said, I quite like that origin. I just thought it was done better 20 years earlier by Alan Brenner in Batman Holy Terror. Court of Owls is a good story, but the fact that Snyder gets hailed as this genius for spinning the origin that way has always bugged me. He just recycled a concept from an Elseworlds tale and tweaked the powerful string pullers from the religious elite and a the theocracy to the social and economic elite in an equally oppressive city environment. Same victims killed by the same type of people, just a different label. Well, that's a good point. I hadn't even really thought of that, but – and we'll get to uh, Batman Holy Terror uh, at some point, which is interesting because I know Frank Miller kept throwing around he was going to do Batman Holy Terror, and I'm like, that's already been done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. That name's already been used.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, moving on to the comments that we received at the Fire & Water website, which, as always, you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Please note we try to acknowledge every comment that gets left on the site. For efficiency's sake, though, sometimes we truncate or cherry-pick what the comments we use on this episode. So... Our first comment comes from Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin said, The Scarecrow has always been one of my favorite villains. Evil shrinks are just fun. Psychiatric training in the DC universe must be really bad, given all of the bad psychiatrists around. Surely someone could fix Scarecrow and Harley, and they could open up a practice together. (laughs) And this led to a sort of thread of conversations about all of the evil psychiatrists, including coming up with a team-up. For the evil psychiatrist. And you thought the name should be the Fatal Freuds. Yes. Martin came back with the Shrinking Violence. (laughs) You came back with the one that I thought was just masterful, which was Young Injustice with Young, like Carl Jung. Um, And Martin came back with Challenge of the Super Freuds. Yeah, uh, and yeah. all of that was punctuated then by uh, Alan Wright stepping in and saying that a team of evil psychiatrists in the DC universe needs a figurehead, and he nominated Dr. Frederick Wortham. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's that's the big reveal at the end. He's like a masked – he's like the hate monger. Yeah, and the fantastic yes. – rip his mask off and it's Hitler. They rip his mask off and it's Frederick Wortham, and they're all like – Dr. Frederick Wortham. <laughs> and then William Moulton Marston can come in and be the good guy, psychiatrist. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, with his lasso of truth and his lie detector. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to Martin's comment. So, Batman knows the villain of the piece is a scarecrow, and he still takes Jason to fight him without any kind of gas mask protection. Did he even check if the boy had any potentially crippling fears <laughs> that might be activated? <laughs> He figured it was just a good test for him. You know, it's like taking him to a, a bar with the hookers and ne'er-do-wells. You know, it's just part just part of the job, you know. Uh, Martin continues, still I like this story so much I put it in a British Christmas Batman annual, and yes, the fact that it was all done in one helped. The horrible scariness of a scarecrow mask is one of the reasons I never could get on with Cassandra Kane as Batgirl. She just looks too damn creepy, like a gimped prop up in a, in a field. <laughs>
0: There was a cover sort of like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems seems like there was, yeah.
0: Um, Speaking of the British Christmas Batman annuals that Martin referenced, he actually sent me the one that includes the story we covered last time, Fear for Sale. Um, It was a lovely package he sent, and he gave one to each of us. Um, it's a hardcover bound edition, Batman Christmas Annual 1992. Uh, it includes three stories. The first one in the set is The Brave and the Bold, issue 178. Jim Aparo on art, Alan Brennett writing the script. It is a team-up of Batman and the Creeper, so you know Dr. Ange likes it. Mm-hmm. The second story in here is the Batman and Robin backup story from Batman issue 353. And then there are a few other features. There's a Poison Ivy pin-up by... Kevin Maguire, uh, and along with her, like, uh, it's like a Who's Who page, but it was like from one of the Who's Who updates. I don't know which one. Oh, actually... This is a
1: loose leaf, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it is. It is from the loose she leaf.
1: Got, uh, like she got uh, Sitting Amongst Poison Ivy and she's mm-hmm. got like uh, Calamon Lotion. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. yep, that's it. Yep. Yep. Uh,
0: there's also a Penguin by Jim Aparo, sort of pin-up here. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a short little article written by Martin himself about the many lives of Robin, where he talks about Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake. Uh, There's like a few little black and white sketches, including some of the early sketches of what the new Robin's costume would look like. Uh, Mm. So very cool. The cover for this one uh, is a page that we gushed over a couple of episodes ago. It's not a Batman cover. It's an interior page from Detective 569 with Batman and the Jason Todd Robin drawn by Alan Davis about to dive onto the cat burglars. So it's a really cool one. And the inside cover is a a Norm Bray painting, which I think this was from one of like the masterpiece card sets or something.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, I got one too. So I get to share too. Uh. (laughs) So I got Batman Annual 1993, and the cover on this one is actually the cover of uh, Batman number 465, where Tim finally joins Batman in his new Robin costume, and that is one of the covers in our graphic uh, on the Fire and Water podcast uh, website. Um, The interior pages have a uh, Batman stock art piece by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise Mm -hmm. be his name, (laughs) and uh, the uh, stories, it has a story called While the City Sleeps. That is actually from way back in Batman number 30, August, September 1945, drawn by Dick Sprang, which is, you know, my favorite Golden Age Batman artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's awesome. And then it has the two part Catwoman story uh, from Batman 460 through 461, the sister in arms two parter that was uh, drawn by uh, Norm Brayfogle. And uh, Norm Brayfogle drew the cover, too. I don't know if I mentioned that. Alan Grant was the writer and Tim Sale actually inks the first part which is interesting that's an interesting art combo and then the second parts Steve Mitchell as as usual uh so yeah this was this is fantastic and i was just uh, i come back from uh, vacation uh driving all day and and found this package and it just made my day it was awesome so thank you very much Martin that that was really 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 cool, very generous of you, and and we really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. We love it. I love getting a package with a customs sticker on it because it means either Paul Hicks or Martin Gray sent me something good. Right. (laughs) Uh, back to the comments Rob Kelly said in case you guys never get to it my favorite moment of the Dark Knight Returns is in book four when in the middle of the final battle Robin notices that Batman looks tired and sags in his saddle like an old man he notices that she notices and smiles like it's funny the fact that we don't see Batman in this moment the shot is of Robin reacting is what makes it so powerful and even though the series is justly famous for its ultra-violence and dynamic action beats it's these quiet moments of grace that I think make that mini more well-rounded than a lot of people remember. That might partly be because the Frank Miller of the 21st century seems to regard that kind of subtle character stuff with disdain, if not outright mockery.
1: Yeah, that yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have not been reading The Dark Knight 3 because... You know, strikes again burned me enough to like. Nah, I'm out. You know. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> yeah, and and partnering him with Brian Azrael, who I like on some of his independent stuff, like a hundred bullets. I loved. But I don't like his work on superhero comics that much, and I don't think he particularly likes superhero comics. He has openly said he doesn't like Batman. He likes Batman's villains. I was like, well, then I don't want you to write a Batman story, really.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's like if you've you've moved – if you feel like you're out of your Batman phase, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then don't write Batman. Yeah. It's – You know, you can just you can just see the dollar signs in their eyes. I think, (laughs) and (laughs) I hate to accuse them of such things, but if you don't want to do it and you're doing it, then come on, what are you doing it for? And there
0: were. uh I mean, I I enjoyed his Wonder Woman run for most of it, not all of it but I enjoyed most of it and a lot of people love that Wonder Woman run that he did with Cliff Chang during the New 52 uh, but as, I mean, Nathaniel Wayne kind of pointed it out to me and I, I didn't really realize it at first but Wonder Woman herself is the least interesting character in that series. Mm. It's really Brian Azrael having fun with all of these other God characters. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. He really doesn't care about her so
2: <laughs> well, There you go
0: uh, anyway, back to Rob's comment. Uh, still talking about Detective Five Seventy One. This is probably my favorite issue of the Bar Davis run. I think it's a perfect spin of the dial for an underutilized Batman villain at the time. Scarecrow was underutilized. I also like that Batman uses his brain and sheer force of will to override the anti fear toxin. Nowadays, bats would probably just jam a razor sharp battering in his thigh because that's all cool and dark and badass. <laughs> You know, Rob, when you say things like that, you're just giving Zack Snyder ideas for the future. Yeah.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> uh uh, Chuck Coletta said, I'm enjoying listening to you compare and contrast the Barr and Miller stories, mostly for the differences in their tone. I do appreciate Miller's work of this era, but he did drain all of the fun slash hope out of Batman. The grim Dark Knight slash Bat equals God is just not as appealing to me as the Batman who would smile occasionally or crack a joke now and then. Bruce as the perpetually traumatized Avenger of the Night is such a downer. The fun of the Bar stories is apparent on every page. At some point, Batman has to be for kids yeah and then then, after that uh me and Chuck went back and forth and talked about you know how that's one thing I liked about year one that you know one did still have some of that hope and optimism and and you know but then you got into things that were just completely dark, like the killing joke and and you know I argued that and you know it's somewhat controversial opinion I have that I guess it's because I have kids, but it's mm-hmm. if you market a kid if a kid if a character's appearing on kids diapers, <laughs> you should only go so far with them, you know what I'm saying yeah. it's not. It's it's like, you know, you don't see Disney taking Mickey Mouse and, you know, having some story where, you know, it, yeah, I don't know who does it, but uh, Black Pete or whatever his name is, you know, <laughs> cripples Minnie or something. You know, I mean, you know,
0: so it's <laughs> Mickey has to go out and choke him to death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: <God>. uh, so, <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> so, you know,
1: it's 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 kind of like that, you know, I mean, I it's. I think that even falls into what we were talking about earlier with Azzarello and Miller. These creators don't want to work within the established framework of where the characters were, and Mm -hmm. we're in the era where you see that, where you see – because the comic companies want to shake that image of – comics aren't just for kids. Well, they're not just for kids, but they want to shake that so badly – that at some point, they barely make comics for kids. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I know we're seeing a reversal of that in a lot of ways in the last few years, and that's good. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, I just, I, these characters that are, you know, marketed as in the toy aisle and things like that for kids, sometimes I think maybe you just shouldn't push them too far out of anything a kid can't read. You know, that's my opinion.
0: And I think there is a lot to be said for experimentation and taking characters, especially characters that have been around for more than half a century, and trying to do something different, trying to put them in a different genre, a different format, like trying to reach a different audience. I don't have a problem with that. Usually where I think DC goes wrong is when they get greedy as a corporation, when they say, oh everyone really liked this story, The Killing Joke, because it kind of went to this weird level, we better bend over backwards to incorporate that into the mainstream Batman mythos and make sure that that feels relevant so they have to read it. Right. Well, it probably wasn't supposed to be, and now you're stuck with the damage that this did to Barbara Gordon's character, even though To their credit, Kim Yale, Chuck Dixon, Gail Simone, everybody who wrote Barbara Gordon after that did a tremendous job of making Barbara slash Oracle the most interesting character at DC for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But still, and then, like, they do the same thing with Kingdom Come, which was never meant to be in the mainstream. But, like, no, we're going to do sequels, and Jeff Johns like, I'm going to bring that into the Justice Society book. It's like, why? Why? What do you (laughs) think? Now they're doing the same thing with Watchmen. It's like – Do you understand, like, part of the reason these things were popular was because they were outside of your main book, your main network, and trying to drag them back in, you're tarnishing both things. You're trying to serve two masters.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, you know, it's it's like I I have no problem really. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of I'm I'm on the fence on these things, but I really don't have a problem with the things existing as their own separate you know entity. That's you know, this is for mature. This is a version for mature readers. It's over here. But you know when all that started filtering in, that portrayal or that you know that that darkness from these versions, which The Dark Knight Returns was or The Dark Knight is it's called, was meant to be a you know one shot you know four issue deal. Mm -hmm. But you know it began it became became the template for how DC was going to handle Batman. You know slowly, but it did, and we're seeing that. So that's when the darkening you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) took place. And that's not, you can't really lay that on the feet of Miller. That was not his intention. He didn't come on the Batman book. Now, I know Batman Year One is in the main title, and I know it doesn't have a comics code and everything, and it has some adult themes, but the characters can still continue on from that. Well, maybe except Catwoman. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, and we'll come up. We'll we'll come back to yeah. that one and what what happened yeah, we'll to the character. Because a lot of people basically have kind of defended that by talking about how DC sort of retconned that out of being a problem, which yeah. you know, is to their credit, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you're right, because the rest of that, I think. The difference that sort of separates Batman Year One is it is just a more straightforward crime noir story, and he's not breaking the toys with Gordon and Batman. He's not doing anything mm-hmm. super different. He's treating them a lot more seriously, but not to the point where they're, like, damaged, you know, like like just soul-crushed these characters or something like that. Selina might be the exception, but again, we'll we'll get back to that, yeah. I think when we eventually get to The Killing Joke, that will be an interesting episode because... I like the story and I think I'm going to try and defend it but the problem is I, I think what hurts it is just like as we as you said sort of everything that came after it and the way that mm-hmm. the material was treated in retrospect. Right. And is that the problem of the book is that just the problem of the people who came after the book I don't know. So well that'll certainly be an interesting conversation.
1: Yes, so. I think so.
0: Uh, moving on, we got a comment from the Irredeemable Shag who said, That Galactic Guardians episode Chris mentioned, wow. While I had seen the Scarecrow in Challenge of the Super Friends, this was really a Scarecrow story. More importantly, it was the first time I was ever exposed to Batman's origin, and the animation in that particular episode was fantastic.
1: Yes. Yeah. As far as I know, that is the first time Batman's origin was presented in other media, at least in visual media other than comics. Yeah. So never in a TV show or movie. He just mentions it on the, the first episode of the TV series, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Never shown. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, Shag goes on, I was thinking the same thing as you, gents. Batman's greatest fear of losing Jason tied into The Dark Knight Returns. Clearly, they were going for the drama of using the foreshadowing from Dark Knight, which the audience would have read, but unknowingly, they were really foreshadowing what would happen later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Shag said, you should have mentioned how Howard Stern was almost the first theatrical scarecrow for the next but never produced Batman movie after Batman and Robin. Just imagine, that wouldn't have damaged the character at all. (laughs) <laughs> no. I
1: remember that. I remember that. I remember uh, that was going to be called, what, Batman Triumphant? Something, I think. yeah, yeah. And I it seems like they were going – I heard a lot of rumors that they were going to cast, like, Kurt Russell as Batman or something and – and uh, you know now that I might have been able to get. I don't. Well, I I love Kurt Russell, but I don't know if I could see him in a Batman suit, and I'd say that's Kurt Russell dressed up as Batman.
0: Yeah, like, and that, gosh, it would have been in the. I mean, it still would have been in the latish nineties, if not early two right. thousands. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember hearing that the Scarecrow was going to be in it with Howard Stern playing him. I remember they were also trying to bring in, like, that might have been Harley's first appearance. I remember people talking about they were going to introduce Harley in that movie. Yeah. And, and sort of maybe tie in flashbacks of the Joker and get archive footage of Jack Nicholson, sort of like what they did with Jor-El in Superman Returns with Marlon Brando's portrayal or something. Right, uh, yeah. I, I heard that might have been a thing, yeah. So Yeah,
1: I heard, I heard maybe that the Scarecrow's fear toxin would have batman yeah. see the joker and i i heard they were actually going to try to get nicholson back mm. to cameo as the joker but i you know i don't i i don't know but it it you know i think in Sch- schumacher was saying oh it's going to be darker it's going to be darker because you know <laughs> after the the backlash from batman and robin which didn't make a ton of money i mean you can say what you want about it but it it suckered everybody in the first couple weekends you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the thing is, like, what still kind of boggles my mind is Joel Schumacher could make dark movies. Like, Oh, yeah. Of some of my favorite. The movie Flatliners is one of my favorite <laughs> movies. Kiefer Sutherland, Kevin Bacon, Julie Roberts. I love that movie. And, yes. And he did a great job with that. That's The Lost Boys, the vampire movie that he did before that is a great movie.
1: Right, um, and that's got a the nice blend of, of humor mm-hmm. and horror and dark. I mean, that that actually would have worked, and it's not campy yeah, humor. No. You know? Um,
0: and even just like a, maybe like ten years ago, he did a movie called Tigerland. It was like a, a movie sort of about like Vietnam, like boot camp basically, training in Vietnam. Really small, but like you never would have imagined it was the same director, but just like a really good. I was like, you know, Joel Schumacher is, can he can direct the hell out of some movies, yeah. He just had completely the wrong vision for this character, um, yes. and I don't think it helped that the studio at that point was more concerned with merchandising than actual story. So, oh, yeah, definitely, at least that's never been a problem again, yeah. <laughs> so.
1: Oh. Uh, MTC wrote in and said, Great episode for a great issue. If we did have extra panels to expound on the Alvin Kenner scene, maybe Batman could have put Christopher Chance on retainer posing as Alvin Kenner, and Chance could signal Batman when Scarecrow came a calling. Since we never saw how Batman escaped the pit, then Chance could have thrown him a line when he was checking on how the case was going. <laughs> Bring in the human target. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you know, there's a storyline from back during the uh, Jerry Conway run uh which our friends Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland will probably be getting to on their Overlook Dark Knight podcast <laughs> when it starts. Woohoo. Uh but uh in that storyline, Vicki Vale returns to Gotham after years of being away and she's back on the trail of, you know, she's back in fifties Lois Lane mode, which is all Vicky Vale was back then <laughs> of trying to prove that Bruce Wayne and Batman were the same person. And Alfred on his own this is this this whole during this whole storyline is when they brought back Or they did a rebooted version of The Monk and Dalla from the the 30s vampire story. And uh, Batman and Robin are dealing with being vampires, literally. (laughs) And uh, so Alfred hires Christopher Chance to pose as Bruce Wayne to throw Vicky off the scent. It's really cool, and it was a cool way to, to use the character, so...
0: Those were uh, uh, those were Gene Colan issues, weren't they?
1: Yeah, Gene Colan and Don yeah. Newton. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's when they were going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: It's funny. I read those stories sort of alternating because I I got the the Tales of the Batman or Legends of the Dark Knight collections for Gene Colan and Don Newton. So I read those stories, but like different chapters at different times. So <laughs> we, eventually, I got the big picture, and I was like, oh yeah, that was a good story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we got a comment from Derek Crabb who said, I don't know if this has been brought up on other social media, but you guys are not imagining the retcon of Hooker Catwoman from Batman Year One. In the 1995 Catwoman annual, in like fact, the whole year of annuals were Year One origin stories, the entire Miller Catwoman sequence was Selina hiding out from the cops from her latest big score. The John who walks in to proposition her is speaking code and actually tipping off Selina to her next job as the cat burglar. It's not the greatest story, but it probably helps with the folks who didn't like the hookerization of catwoman hookerization is a word I don't get a chance to say enough I know at the time of reading I got a kick out of that retcon
1: well there you go I knew so thank you derek i I knew that that was out there somewhere and I think just about the same time you posted this while I was doing research for the episode I came across it but thank you for verifying that 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 I didn't just imagine that and I think that had that's like most of that catwoman series in that period has Jim Ballant Art so you get to see crude cropped Selena with you know uh, volleyballs glued to her <laughs> chest, you know so <laughs> uh, Jimmy McGlinchey wrote in and said nice to have a one and done issue, although was the scarecrow a bit too high up the road gallery food chain to only deserve one issue not that I would want to want a six part extravaganza, but surely Dr. Crane deserved a two issue story. Well, you know, I think they've got a big anniversary issue for the next one, so Mm -hmm. you know, bar, you know, bar, probably. I I don't know. I think this one works as a as a two as a one parter. I don't, you know, as a two parter, it might have been a little thin, you know.
0: Yeah, I think it's for this particular story. I think this was fine. Like, I mean, Scarecrow, I like him, but he's one of those people where once you get the gimmick, there's only so far you can go with it basically like he poisons batman batman has to overcome fear batman takes out scarecrow because he's not a physical threat so it's sort of like it's it's all the psychological thing and I don't know how much you can – how far you can take that. So I don't – of course, for me, like the only other multi-part Scarecrow story that – well, no, we're, we're going to get to one once the Bray Fogle era starts. But I'm thinking of a more recent – it was from the New 52 era, a, a Scarecrow story that David Finch illustrated in, I think, Detective Comics. Um, it was like a six-part story. And it really should have been like a three-part story. It, it was really – that was decompressed way beyond the point that it needed to be.
1: Um. Well, even the animated series, guys, in like two episodes, like uh, mm. is it the, the the one where Batman's in Arkham, uh, yeah. is it dreams in darkness. Uh, there's that one where the Scarecrow's the villain, but that's not really the point of it. It's right. more the Batman's trapped in Arkham and then over the edge – yeah. Of course, it's yeah, this yeah. whole fear-induced, uh, you know, uh, realities created in Batgirl's mind where she's killed and Gordon turns against Batman and everything. Right. So, uh, which the first time I watched that, yeah. I was just like, what, what, what?
0: <laughs> and in, in both those cases, you're dealing with stories where you don't really even necessarily know that Scarecrow is the villain until the very end. Right. So it's hard to sort of give that a a longer series, like a multi-part story. But
1: right. anyway. Jimmy continues, notwithstanding that, it was a fun issue. My first exposure to the character was from Alan Grant's three-parter that officially made Tim Drake Robin. I think another of the first stories I read about him was his cameo in the first Sandman trade with Dr. Destiny. Weird to think how the early game in Sandman was so tied into the DCU. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, especially if you, when, when uh, Rob and Shag get to the who's who loose leaf edition, we're going to see that yeah, the, the the Vertigo stuff, the Sandman, it's really tied into the DC Universe a lot in the early 90s so and uh, late 80s. Uh, Jimmy continues again, it was interesting to hear Ryan's comments on Dixon's run. Looking back, I guess the attraction in Dixon's writing was how he really developed the characterization of both secondary characters like Gordon, Bullock, Montoya, etc. And arguably, if it wasn't for Dixon's initial work on the Gotham Police, we would never have gotten the Gotham Central series. And on villains like Cluemaster, Riddler, Firefly, and Spellbinder. By contrast, I guess he did very little with Batman, either the Grim Avenger in Batman mode Or Clueless Socialite in Bruce Mode. Will be interesting to see what you think when you get to these stories. You know, I think part of it too might be Dixon maybe felt like he was sharing Batman with Doug Minch in the Batman title and Alan Grant in Shadow of the Bat. Mm -hmm. So maybe he felt like, and he was writing Robin and Nightwing and Birds of Prey. (laughs) So he felt like he could use and develop those characters more. They weren't being as used as much in other comics at the time. So it was kind of... It's kind of like that whole, you know, the Justice League writer can't do anything with this character because they've got their own book. So that might be part of
0: it, too. That might be. That's possible. Uh, Speaking of that, Alan Wright came back and said, Ryan, if it's any comfort, you're not the only one with those feelings about the Dixon Batman. I'm right there with you. But I don't agree with you on Joe Chill. I like that Batman did eventually meet up with his parents' killer. It means his mission is about making sure that such tragedies never happen to anyone else. Not about some quixotic quest to capture one guy. Where each criminal he stops might be his parents' killer. And that was the post-zero hour logic for removing Chill's role. I think Chill is, in a way, more random for us knowing who he is. As an unknown, he looms much larger. As Joe Chill, he is a criminal like many. He is emblematic of criminals, just a guy. As an unknown, the killer becomes something greater, a lurking presence. It no longer stands for all crime. Like Chris, though, I'm not fond of Chill being some instrument of some vast conspiracy. I grew up the pre-Crisis Batman and knew about Lou Moxon, but even then, Chill being a hitman instead of a thug took something away from the simplicity of the tale. On Gotham City, it strikes me that the Gotham of year one isn't the macabre, crazy place of later tales with gothic architecture. Years one Gotham is the New York of the 1970s, the New York before the famous I Love New York campaign, the urban hell that loomed large in real-life cases like The Son of Sam and in films such as Serpico, based on real life, and Taxi Driver. Both those films have been cited as huge influences on year one. Bruce Wayne does have a Travis Bickle quality, and Holly seems like a comic book version of Jodie Foster's Iris the corruption and decay seems more real world than other batman tales. Yeah, no, that's that's true and I think those those same influences shaped Frank Miller's work with Daredevil uh over at Marvel and I think the same thing sort of transposed into his version of Gotham City with him and Mazzucchelli drawing it that way.
1: You know, and 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 honestly while there's a part of me that likes, that kind of digs the whole Thomas Wayne wore the Batman suit and the Lou Moxon thing, I, I understand why they excise that. And I, I can do without that, to be honest with you. And, and even though we're going to get into it soon, I prefer the original... Just straightforward telling of Batman confronting Joe Chill than what we're going to get in Batman Year Two. I'll just be upfront. I mean, yeah. I'm 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 interesting in reading it again, but because uh, I really enjoy uh, Mike Barr and and you know the first parts by Alan Davis, and then we'll see what we get into with Todd McFarlane. But yeah, you know, it's just uh, you know sometimes simple's best, you know. <laughs> Uh, We got, of course, a lengthy comment from Diablo Frank, who said, Seemingly like Ryan, I've become a comic book originalist in my old age. If you're going to write a character, you go back to the original stories to determine true north as you layer in later interpretations and your own innovations. So if you're going to write Batman, you should take a look at his earliest and most resilient villains. The Scarecrow dates back to 1941 and one of the earliest stories in World's Finest Comics. Deemed too scary for the Silver Age, he made a comeback in the Bronze with the aid of appearances on Super Friends. He's been a staple of Batman's rogues gallery ever since and eventually appears in pretty much every media adaptation, including the three highest grossing films on the Dark Knight's resume. So, why don't I like the Scarecrow? Ranking him far below more commercially challenged rogues like Penguin and the Riddler, not to mention less iconic options like Bane and Killer Croc. Part of it is that he's simply too on the nose. He's a spooky crook facing a spooky vigilante, and they both have the same basic M.O., More to the point, dramatics aside, they're both kind of harmless. I guess Scarecrow kills people, but I can't name any, and most of his stories are quote-unquote imaginary tales, even by comic book standards, since they all end up revolving around illusions created by his fear gas. He's just another scrawny geek using a gimmick to bolster his ego, and Scarecrow seems so especially one note in his shtick that I frankly find even the Mad Hatter more exciting. Scarecrow simply has too little charisma, And it's too much like Uatu the Watcher, facilitating one what-if scenario after another that amounts to nothing. He's the Bobby Ewing (laughs) shower (laughs) of (laughs) supervillainy, cheat walking on a pair of gangly legs. Are there any truly great Scarecrow stories? I haven't read any. The -the over-the-edge episode of the new Batman Adventures, I guess. And there Frank mentions what I was talking about Mm. earlier. Uh so uh, you want to chew on that for a little bit, Ryan, <laughs> before we move on.
0: <laughs> um, it's it's Frank, I, which means I understand his logic. It's I, I still like the character though. Um, right. it, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't diminish my love for him. But I I get why he's I get this is a perfectly frank opinion.
1: Right. Well, you know, he makes a good point that the scarecrow and the mad hatter do have pretty similar MOs in a lot of ways i mean you know they they because you know the the mad hatter puts the hat band on you and you know uh, you know, puts you in some kind of mental state or controls you or whatever. And so, yeah, you know, and, and they've done different. They've tried to, you know, they in recent years they've decided, oh, well, the Mad Hatter's a pervert, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's like because it works so well in identity crisis. Uh, so. <laughs>
0: and interesting that you brought up him too, because that's another one where I see some similarities. Because going back to the episode the, in the Batman animated series, the episode "Perchance to Dream," where mm-hmm. Batman wakes up and he thinks that Bruce, he he's still Bruce Wayne. His parents are. Still still alive he's engaged to selena and batman is somebody else and he it seems like he's woken up in like the perfect life and he has to challenge that you only find out in the last 10 seconds that it was all mad hatter tricking him uh and that's another one where Manha- mad hatter was the villain but it was all just an imaginary tale and he wasn't really up front as as like a a, a presence in the story and getting back to other things like the batman arkham video games the in arkham city Scarecrow and Mad Hatter have have similar levels if you play those games, where Batman mm. is drugged and things get trippy around him, and you basically just have to fight these guys where everything looks kind of crazy and insane. So interesting that, yeah, we're not the only people to kind of pick up on the the similarities between those two and how they can be used in Batman Adventures since – they're not somebody who's necessarily going to kill a lot of people or beat up a lot of people because that's not the type of villain they are.
1: Right, right. Okay. Frank continues. I also have to confess a bias for the Marvel comic scarecrow, sometime villain of Captain America, Iron Man, and Ghost Rider. He lacks the pedigree of Jonathan Crane, but he's a creepy, serial-killing contortionist whose look appeals to me more. I'm also fond of another Marvel scarecrow, this one a mystical antihero, later rebranded The Straw Man. DC Scarecrow never felt anywhere near as imposing as either, and basically just felt like Joker-like. The shot of Batman carrying Scarecrow at the end of the story reminds me of an old Gilbert Godfrey joke—one bluer than Batman's cape. I don't know that joke, and I don't think I want to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know. The, I know the Scarecrow. I, I don't know the Marvel Scarecrow that well. I'm basically the only thing that's popping in my head is his Ohatmu image drawn by Mike Zeck. That's what I'm seeing in my head right now. That's that's. I probably have a Captain America book with him in it, but it's it's not ringing a bell. I do know who he's talking about with the heroic or the anti-hero, the Scarecrow later called the Straw Man. I think that I think he was the character in a painting that came to life or mm. was basically like a spirit of vengeance, almost type thing, like like Ghost Rider or something like that. So
0: I I read some of his stories, the Marvel Scarecrow, and I don't know if this was an inspiration, but to me, he always seemed kind of like a. A prototype or what James Robinson would have done with the Starman villain. Who, who was the Golden Age guy? Why can't I think of his name? Was it Randall? Oh, Ragdoll. Yeah, yeah, Ragdoll. Yeah, it was. There was something like that. Uh, yeah. I always kind of thought that maybe, like, maybe Ragdoll was somewhat inspired, or Robinson's portrayal of Ragdoll was somewhat inspired by that Scarecrow. I could be way off, but those two kind of remind me of each other. So.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, the whole contortionist angle and serial killer—that—that that does sound like Robinson's version of the old Flash villain, the Ragdoll. So yeah, I can, yeah. I can see that. Uh, Frank continues. Prior to the Year One annuals, the Catwoman retcon was retconned away in her Zero issue. Just try to explain the 1989 miniseries and related Action Comics Weekly strip, though. I think it's an important distinction, too, that Miller, to my recollection, never quite made Selena Kyle a prostitute. She's a madam in DKR and a dominatrix in year one. Those positions may be peripheral to prostitution, but they're not the same thing. Well, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. the <laughs> sort of flesh trade as it is sort of, sort of makes it it's, – it's, I, I think it's more than peripheral – um, but we'll split hairs there. Uh, yeah,
1: I think it's kind of like you know you go into a, you know a you know a, a parlor and it's like okay which one do you want you know <laughs> <laughs> make your selection. <laughs> um, Not that I, I know from experience, Cindy, don't smack me. <laughs> sure, sure.
0: Yeah, well, um, I do hope we get to cover that 1989 Catwoman miniseries. Um, as for the Action Comics Weekly, maybe I think he, she was only in four parts. Um, we'll see. Anyway, uh, moving on, we got a short but sweet comment from Mike Gillis who, if you remember in the previous episode, he asked me a very simple question that I gave a rather complicated answer to. But he basically just said, I'm glad that I couldn't open the door and let all of your fears out. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. So he's like the scarecrow. Yeah, exactly.
1: He's Professor Jonathan Crane. Exactly.
0: And our final comment on the website came from our buddy Howard Simpson, who is just now catching up on the series and uh, of Batman issue 404. He said, Great episode with very keen insights and observations. Looking forward to the discussion on the art. And yes, Chris, believe it or not, in a Brave and the Bold issue, Batman displays a badge that proves that he is a duly deputized deputy of the law. I think it was a Teen Titans team-up.
1: Yep, I think I've I've got that one in the uh, in the bat well in the Brave and the Bold uh, omnibus and and uh, the uh, showcases. Yes, I think that's a Nick carty drawn Batman uh, Teen Titans team up. And yes, he flashes. He literally flashes a badge. Yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Yes. So. all right, that is going to be it for this episode. Next time, we have got a long, a deluxe in anniversary issue of detective comics to cover what's coming up on that one chris
1: well you have the 50th anniversary of detective comics and it is a big team up with lots of detective guest stars i don't know if i want to spoil it for the folks who haven't read that one yet but it's batman and robin and two other characters who have appeared in detective comics over the years and another very surprising guest star character uh so come back for that
0: Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.